Gracious Heavenly Father, as we explore, not just in Sunday morning service, but as we explore through life who you are, and we explore the work that you have in mind for us, and as we meet you in your work that you have started before time began and will culminate uh, at your will, I pray that we are grounded indeed through the storms that come far too often. I pray today that this series that we begin, uh, inspired by recent things, often uh, will also give us a way that anchor, which is to know something which is essential to who you are, and therefore essential to who we are as followers of you, love. Bless this time, God, not because I speak and not because anyone here uh, seeks laud or, or attention, but because to focus on you for this time, to have the blessing of having this time to open your word, to hear a lesson from God's word, to be convicted of your spirit working among us, among us is such a blessing. I pray we never take for granted. Meet us here, God, and take us where you want us to go in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I did think it was appropriate, just with things going on, to uh, to see the Matthew series, and I do have uh, stuff on that for the rest of the year, and I would like to share that with you if you wanted to know some about that, and obviously the gift of the commentaries was a great thing, so please still avail yourself of some of those things. Um, however, I've really been inspired this week. It's actually been a surprisingly good week for us. Uh, it's been an incredibly encouraging week for us, and I thank you for that, and every one of you who have uh, been and still will be a part of that, uh, that's not what we expected. But uh, it's out of this, which I wanted to speak on this subject, kind of uh, call it my last word to you, because <laughs> it's worthwhile. On this note, though, however, uh, speaking of current events, I do want to talk about uh, something which is going to start Tuesday, that uh, we're going to start meeting we, meaning whoever would like to, with the stipulation they'll talk about, are going to start meeting Tuesdays uh, at 7 o'clock at night, uh, probably in the building basement for the next six weeks of a season of very intense prayer and fasting. And uh, I don't want to sound harsh, I don't want to sound exclusive, but um, in this time I think it's important to to let you be aware that Anyone who comes will be able to participate, and we will be sending a clock for an hour, not looking at the clock anymore and going until the timer goes off or until the Spirit says that's enough. Anyone who comes will participate in the four S's of prayer, which is supplication, singing, silence, and song. And I will invite us and hopefully lead us to not just pray for the future of Circle, but also just for God's will to be done coming straight from Acts, that he revive whatever he needs to, that he create miracles in the way that only he can, that we experience things and look forward to his vision in ways that maybe we need to be reminded of. Uh, I will say this, though, maybe a little bit harsh. Uh, we will be, it will be fairly focused. We'll be, we'll be introducing fasting, and unless you're okay with the commitment and the methodology I've described, I invite you to join us from home. That's not to say don't come, but please be committed and please be ready to, to delve into this if you come. So if you have any questions on that, please let me know. When it comes to love is, 
obviously our culture has not done a very good uh, service to anyone as far as this goes. In fact, I've talked about this before, but if you just to Google love, which is a uh, <coughs> fairly horrible idea, you'll find this definition first and foremost, love, an intense feeling of deep affection to a great interest of and pleasure in something. Um, that's the noun form. The verb form, a deep affection for someone or to like or enjoy very much. Well, there's more to that. In fact, especially in Greek lexicons, agape is one of the longest uh, definitions there is. Actually, that's true in English dictionaries. And so if you want to just go off this offhand, what does love mean? Well, I thought of some of the ways which I've used love just in the last couple uh, weeks even, months, years. Uh, we could say this, I love baseball. Particularly, I love the St. Louis Cardinals, and if uh, you don't love them just as much as I do, it, you know, it's okay to be wrong. <laughs> and, comp and I love a little bit of this, too, so it's all right. But I love baseball. I love what about baseball? The game, the experience, the, the analytics, the, the, the production. Actually, the Cardinals kind of stink this year, so I'm not really loving it this year, but that's... Go ahead, Jan. Say B.A. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I love baseball. What does that mean? Well, is that the same as how I love milkshakes or dessert? Because that's a whole different kind of love. And in fact, I don't always love that after we have it. I love puppies. What does that mean? Are puppies like milkshakes or puppies like baseball? Is baseball like milkshakes? Who knows? I love babies, particularly my own children. Now, do I love Melissa as much as I love milkshakes or baseball? Or do I love baseball and milkshakes as much as I love Melissa? Is that love extending to this moment? What is this moment that I love so much? Do I love this moment opposed to that moment? What about the moments I don't love? What about, I love jokes. You want to hear a construction joke? Never mind, I'm still working on it. I was going to pause, but then I know some of you would be like, I didn't get to read it, I was going to bug me the whole sermon. That's the joke. Uh, I love, what? How? Now, all that was a little bit in jest, but I mean, we know conceptually that love has a very wide definition of meanings, at least of applications, at least of uses. And those are actually some very good questions to ask. When you say you love something, what is that love like compared to how you love something else? I better not love my children like I love milkshakes. Be a horrible father. <laughs> I better not love baseball the same as I love my wife. Of course, I'm, I better not love Thomas the same way I love my wife either. He hopes so too. <laughs> Just got weird. <laughs> Obviously, we know there's these differences. But what I want to try to say is that because of these differences, whenever it comes to love, and I do think as much as we in the church will readily admit, I don't know a Christian who will admit that they don't know necessarily when they say, yes, I love God, yes, I love my church, yes, I love my brothers. Maybe we don't know what that means as much as we think we do. Because after all, we love milkshakes and puppies and baseball. And we love God. Now, some of you are going, well, of course they're not the same thing. Yes, but explain it. I'm not going to be explaining it per se. But we are going to be delving into helping us understand some of these things a little bit better. When it comes to agape love, there's four main kinds of love in the Bible. There's eros, storge, phileo, and agape. There's romantic love, fam familial love, brotherly love, and Agape love, which is traditionally and rightfully so associated with the unconditional love. This is the way of saying, as, as I had lunch with a brother this week, uh, we talked about how that means, you know, we don't always like each other, but it means we love each other. It's the kind of thing that says, because of the love of God, I love you. And so therefore, we often describe it as 
a choice love, that because of the God that we worship, the God which has created us, I will choose them to love you, and I will choose, hopefully, to act in a way that demonstrates that. But once again, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we know we're doing that well? I know that sometimes my love for baseball and my love for milkshakes direct my choices more than I want to admit. Is that the same kind of choices I should be making when it comes to agape love, when it comes to God, when it comes to my brothers and sisters, when it comes to my community? I'm not trying to ask these questions to be, uh, you know, create trouble, but I think these are valid questions we have to ask. Because especially in this world, to which oftentimes the inadvertent love of other things has permeated the church and directed us more than we want to admit, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to love our community with the love of God? What does it mean to love each other? Literally, look at the person to your left and to your right. Then look one farther if they're your spouse or your family member, because hopefully you know what that, some of that means. What's it mean to love the person three pews back? What's it mean to love the person on the other side of the room? What do these choices mean? We're going to delve into that over the next six weeks. And I had Bill Red read the passage from John 13 as a little bit of where this draws inspiration. And I want to actually read a passage later on in the verse. Uh, I just couldn't do that to both Bill or you to read. Uh, I've done it before, but I figured I might not again read 40-something verses. In James and in John chapter 13, in verse 31, it says this: When he had gone out, Jesus said, "Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also be glorified. Will glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once." Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 34, hopefully a very, very familiar passage to us. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And verse 35 is what I want to focus on in this series. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, maybe belaboring the point, but once again, this ask the question. What kind of love is that? Yes, we know agape. Yes, we know that means we choose to. But what kind of love do we choose to have? What does that look like? Love of puppies and milkshakes? Love of baseball? The love of our spouse? Or something else? What I want to offer in this series is not a deep exegetical dive into the Greek. Although, if you ever want to do that, I'm all for it. I just lost some of you. You just glazed over. <laughs> what I want to do in this series is look at characteristics that we see first and foremost of who God is. And I'll come around to this, why we start there later in the sermon, and say this is what some of these choices look like, and this is how these things manifest among not only us and God, but us with each other, and then finally with us and our community. The first thing I want to look at today is love is active. And I don't mean just active as in it is present, as in, yes, I am actively loving people I mean in the sense of that there is motion, there is forward continuum, there is somewhere that is going, then there is activity going on along with it, that kind of active 
Love is active. And I want to talk about how it's active in three distinct ways. Love is active in its pursuit, actively pursuing, actively responding, and actively seeking. Love is actively pursuing, actively responding, and actively seeking. Love is actively pursuing. First and foremost, just because some of you are thinking it, I mean this in a healthy sense. There's a way of pursuing people unhealthily, and that gets you restraining orders and such. I don't mean that. What I mean is actually something at the very heart of what Scripture reveals to us. When you look at the library of stories contained in this book, which we treasure, in this in this library of wisdom, in this inspired word directly from our Creator, we see a trend that appears from the very first pages that continues all the way to the end. We see several trends, as a matter of fact, but I think one of the most striking ones is this. In Genesis chapter 3, whenever Adam and Eve had sinned, they knew they messed up, and they hid in the garden. Who came looking for whom? Who came looking for whom? We have this false idea. It's actually from a misinterpretation of uh, Jose, uh, one of the H prophets. I'm naming I'm, Not Hezekiah. I think Habakkuk. Someone go look it up and shout it out later. It's the verse. It's in the first chapter. It's actually verse 17, I'm pretty sure, where we get this idea that says, the Holy God can't be around sin. Well, if you read the next verse... The prophet's actually complaining to God, saying, Holy God, your eyes are too righteous. You are too righteous to God to be around sin. So why are you around sin? He's complaining about the fact that God is in the midst of these people who are constantly messing up. God is working in the midst of people who are dishonoring Him. And the prophet's going, God, you are so righteous. Why are you around these people? There's a misapplication that says God can't be around sin. Well, we know that's not true from the very beginning of the Bible, brothers and sisters. When Adam and Eve had sinned and they had spiritually started to disassociate themselves from God, when they placed that barrier between them and God, who came looking for whom? Who wanted to know where they were? Who wanted to know? That they were not completely abandoned, although now there would be consequences. In Genesis chapter 6, whenever God had gotten to the point of being grieved in his heart about making man, who actively, yes, said there are consequences that must be done, but who actively said, Noah, through you, Will the people continue? Who actively sought out whom? Who gave whom the tools in order to survive the flood? Who gave whom the grace in order that mankind may continue? Even in the midst of judgment, who pursued who? In Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, is the verse of why God wanted a tabernacle to be built even as they were wandering through the wilderness, so that I may dwell among my people. Know a form that is when it comes to pagan gods or goddesses and the fact that there is a temple there, you better go worship. You know, of course that God is not going to waste his time with you, but if you dishonor him, he's going to smite you down and smack you. What does the God of the Bible want? He wants to be close to his people. He wants to be with his people. He wants to be in such a way with his people that they are literally depending on him for guidance throughout the day and throughout the night. In the camp, it was uh, arranged so that way all there were four camps three camps 
in a row. And then the tabernacle was in the very center. Why? Not as a power play of God saying, look what I am and you are. It's so God could be in the midst of His people. That's the whole point, as I preached before, of Leviticus, to remind the people that holiness is not just something you do when you come to the temple, but holiness, the holiness of God, be holy as I am holy, remember? It's not a command or else, but it's a command to say, be like me, because that's the best thing for you. God wanted to be in the midst of His people. Who came looking and seeking whom? Even in the midst of some of the really, really bad parts of Scripture. Judges cycle. To where there is a familiar cycle. It happens eight or nine times. To where Israel is good with God. Israel says, hey, let's worship idols. God says, that's a bad idea. Israel says, whatever. All of a sudden, Israel's overrun. They're taken away to captivity. And all of a sudden, Israel goes, as oftentimes our children do, God help! And God says, over and over and over, all right. Brings them out of captivity. There's a time of worship and goodness. And the cycle repeats. Here's the thing. While we oftentimes focus on judges and we look at how horrible human beings are and how over and over and over Israel messed up, why did they survive at all? Because God, even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of their mess up, still pursued them, sent judges to say, this is how you need to live. I know you're not going to listen to me, but this is how I need you to live. And when you're in exile, you need to remember this is how you need to live. And oftentimes it wasn't until exile they go, oh yeah. But who kept pursuing whom? Over and over every cycle. The cycle would have ended had God not continued to pursue the people who kept screwing it up. Jeremiah. Talk about someone who had a thankless job. Forty years preached. And arguably not a single convert. Forty years preached and arguably how we would define metrics. He failed because... Israel, or Judah, still went into captivity. No one paid attention to him. But yet, it's in Jeremiah that we read some of the most wonderful promises of God that I will take the law and I will write it on the hearts and they will be my people and I will be their God. You know why? Because God never abandoned His people even when they were at their worst. He constantly sent people to say, I am here and I am waiting for you. And even when you're in the midst of horribleness... I will be here to still say, I love you and I'm your God. You come back to me. Who still sought whom in the midst of so much sin? Even in the midst of the most unimaginable, unimaginable spot in Babylon, in pagan Babylon. What happens? Just the same thing that happened in pagan Egypt. God was in the midst of His people because He never went anywhere and continued to seek people who would seek Him, pursued His people, so that even in the midst of their worst, they could be brought out and reminded of their best. In John chapter 1, we see the ultimate example of this in that Jesus literally tabernacled, made His tent among us. Tabernacled what? It brings in the imagery from the Old Testament about God's presence made manifest. Emmanuel, God with us who came looking for whom. In Acts chapter 2, even though Jesus ascended into heaven, what happens? Pentecost and the Holy Spirit, part of God Himself. How He does it? I don't know! 
part of God Himself inhabits His body and every member who believes and has faith and is baptized in His name. Who has pursued whom since the beginning? Brothers and sisters. A loving God. It's the same thing as relationships. I hope many of you who have been married for any length of time know that if you ever stop pursuing your spouse, you end up in trouble. If you ever start taking your spouse for granted, you start the cycle of judges in a sense. It's a good marriage principle. It's a good dating principle. a good principle of life. Whatever relationships you have, never stop pursuing each other. Why? Because we don't deserve each other. We are only here by the grace of God. And if we ever start taking ourselves for granted, if we ever start taking each other for granted, if we start taking our God for, for granted, we've dishonored not only ourselves, but the people that they were created to be and the God who made them. Never stop pursuing those that we care about. Why? Because they're worth pursuing. They're worth always actively trying to build up and have a better and deeper relationship with. I don't consider myself friends from people that I was really good friends with in high school. Why? Because we haven't talked for 20 years. Maybe that's harsh. But the whole point is, because we haven't still pursued each other, I know what they were. I have no idea who they are right now. They don't know me. But yet some of my still really good friends I haven't seen for 15 years because we still pursue that relationship. We still pursue each other and say, I know it's been a while, but how are you? What's going on? Tell me what's going on in your life. Love actively pursues. If that's the God that we worship, how much more ought the people who believe in Him and who are called according to His purpose pursue one another? I know for a fact that the people who have made some of the greatest impact in this congregation are the ones that pursue other people and don't take no for answer sometimes in a healthy, good way, understand. I'll name them except they wouldn't want me to. The Bratz, for example. The Jensen's. Two comes to mind just offhand. They had us in our, their house this week. Those who say, it's not enough just for me to know you I want you to pursue an active, loving relationship with you. Brothers and sisters, let me be frank for a minute. Saying, well, they haven't done it to me is a lazy excuse. Saying, well, once someone invests in me, then I'll invest in them. That's a lazy excuse. Because we're not reflecting the God who created us. We're reflecting something else. If we're waiting to be pursued instead of doing the pursuing. Do we need to do both? Absolutely. The goal, I would pray that in a church, and it's possible, it's happened, that everyone who comes in feels that they've been pursued by someone in a healthy sense, that they love me, they cared for me, they knew my name. And it wasn't just someone who took up space and went, oh, I was here for a while. I would pray that's the case in this congregation. I would pray that's the case in the congregation of God's people because we have a God that pursues His people in love. And as you might imagine, this is what our community needs. Too often, lately, the church is accused 
of judging the world, of pointing out the flaws of the world, of correcting the world. Do all those things need to happen? I'm not saying they don't. When is the last time the world accused us of pursuing them in love? When was the last time our community looked at this congregation and said, you know what, I wish they would just go away because they are so active in wanting to work with us that it's driving me crazy. When was the last time your neighbor said, please stop asking me over for dinner because I just, you know, you ask way too much. Please stop asking me how my day really is because, you know, it's just weird. When was the last time someone said that to you? For us? The world will know we are Jesus' disciples by our love. Notice, not by what we do on Sunday morning. Not by how we act on social media. Not by how well our singing is or how many ministries we have going on. Not by how good or bad the preacher is. Not by if we have deacons and shepherds and ministry leaders. By our love. A love that pursues as we have been pursued by our Creator. Love is actively responding. What I mean by that is that and people who have been in good relationships know before uh, I'll be honest, men are particularly guilty of this. Men who have ever been in a relationship, how when have you ever responded to your wife and later you learned that was the wrong response? I'm not saying in a bad way. But for example, it's the whole thing of I need you to listen. Instead you went, well here's how to fix it. I don't care how to fix it. I need you to listen. <laughs> oh. How do I do that? <laughs> Happened to me. Happened to me just the other day as a matter of fact. My wife is a woman of grace. Beyond what I deserve. Actively responding means that you don't just respond to what you think. It responds to actually what people need, to actually what they say. For example, obvious examples. Whenever the flood came, what did God give Noah? An ark. When there was no way out, what did God give His people? An escape. Whenever they needed to be reminded of who God was, that He was there, what did God give? The prophets all through the Old Testament. When the world was at the point of needing, at the right time, a Savior, what did God give? The Messiah. Now these seem obvious to us. Whenever we ever really thought about all the other things that God could have given His people, and or sometimes what we try to give each other, which may be not what we need. This has to do with communication. There's such a thing I teach in uh, premarital and marital counseling, which active listening and active responding. Uh, which, it's amazing, and I don't want to, I'm not going to call anyone out, obviously. I've done this for a while. I've counseled tens of couples. It's amazing how often this conversation happens in my, in my office. Especially couples that are maybe having a little bit of a tense time. Um, someone will say <clears throat> to the other person that's assertively talking, say, I really need you to be present more because I feel isolated and alone. The other person goes, she's saying I'm never around. I'm like, that's not what she said. 
She's saying I don't listen. That's not what she said. We actually literally do this thing in counseling to where we actually have the person repeat exactly what they said and the other person saying, was that what you meant? Yes, that's what I meant. It's silly, but it saves marriages. Because oftentimes we get wrapped up in what we think we heard, what we think the other person needs, our solution, instead of actively responding to what they're saying, to what they need, to what they are asking of us. God does this perfectly because He knows us better than we know ourselves. Wouldn't that be nice in a marriage? Wouldn't that be nice in a friendship? Wouldn't that be nice in a church? We don't have that. And so, we have to take the extra step of being active in love by actively responding not to what we think, not to what we heard, not to what we are assured of, by actually responding to one another. God has never given His people anything they don't need. Think about that thought. Likewise, God has never not given them something they do need. God has never given us something we don't need, and God has never given us not given us something we do need. God has actively, perfectly responded in love to exactly what we need every time. We don't always know it, but He does. Thus, we reflect that in each other by loving and responding in ways that actually, let me don't want to be too on the nose, actually matter. That's actually addressing the needs among our people. That's actually from talking and relationship and actually hearing each other and saying, I heard you say this, is this true? Well, then let me address that. Now it requires a couple things. That requires us to actually tell each other what we need. That actually requires a depth of relationship that says, look, I am in the pits right now and I'm going to tell you about it. And the other person going, all right. But by serving each other in ways of humility and actual response, to what they need, not what we think they need. To what we know they need. Why? Because we listen, we ask, we have relationship, we have active love. Likewise, a sense of trend here, obviously. Do we actually know what our community needs from us? We do things. They're good things. Jesus says, the poor will always be among you. Kind of a downer. But okay. Do we know what our community needs from us? Do we know what our brothers and sisters sitting behind us and across from us actually need from us? Do we know how to actively respond to each other as God responds to us? Once again, does our community... I won't belabor the point. You get it. Finally, Love is actively seeking. Now, this is different than the bit in this sense. When God has His people and He says, Be holy because I said so. No. Be holy because holiness is a good virtue. No. What's He say? Be holy because why? Actually say it. Be holy for I am holy. What does that say? It says a couple of things. One, it says that morals and virtues and ethics are not based because God says or because they're true, but because that's the very character of God, which is an amazing thought that you should dwell on a little bit. <laughs> but second of all, it tells us something. 
It tells us something in that being like God, talk about an obvious statement, is possibly the best way to live. God didn't just say, don't do this and don't do this. He said, be holy. Why? Because I am holy. Meaning that if you are holy like me, it will be the best thing for you. Likewise, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we who are with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-creasing in glory, which comes from this Lord who is in the Spirit. What is he saying here? The goal of Christianity is to be transformed to the very image of Jesus, to be Christ-like to become like Jesus. We see it again in a few verses that I have later after I forgot this slide. Love is actively seeking. Not, once again, what we think. But love is actively seeking for you. Now, the where we hear this in our society all the time. The difference when it comes to what we are to do is that we are to seek the best for you in and for and by the very glory of God Himself, by the holiness of God Himself, by the image of Christ Himself. Why does this matter? Well, let me illustrate it this way. I've done this before. Ever so often, looking to the... I messed this up last time I said this illustration. Looking to the east... I said west last time, and I got a whole bunch of comments saying, if you look to the west, you see the ocean. Dummy. If you look to the east every now and then, you see the central cascade. This happens... Washington. Now, do we see it all the time? No, most of the time it's see this, especially during the winter months. The thing is, there's two things about this, is that when you look this way, and this is not a real picture, but just imagine for a second, there's two things that are true. Every now and then, the mountains still pop out from among the fog. Even if for me it seems they're sometimes mostly in the fog. And I know that even in the midst of the fog, it's still there. It's still even in fog and it does pop out every now and then. What this tells us is that every so often... Let's go back to relationships for a second. This is good dating advice now. Apparently I'm in a, that relational mood. Whenever you're dating someone and you're trying to determine whether they're a good fit or not, every so often you should see the potential of who they will become pop out from behind the fog. It's not going to be there forever. In fact, it may only be a fleeting glance. But you ought to be able to see who this person is becoming in God, who this person is becoming in their life. And it ought to be a good thing. And if it's not, there might be an answer. Likewise, you should still see that in your relationships, in your friends, in your family, in your spouse. You should still see who they are striving to become. It may not be clear all the time, but you still ought to see who they are becoming. And if you see something that needs correction, we talk about it. If you see something unhealthy, we talk about it. But what's the point? To our friends and family and our loved ones, our job, our goal is to help them and join them on that mission to become that person that God has made them to be. One of the promises of marriage is to say, I see the person that you're becoming to be and I'm not going to change you per se, but I'm going to do what I can to help you become the person that you want to be, that God wants you to be, and I'm going to hope and partner with you in order help you become that person that I've seen just, just glimpses of and it looks amazing. Sometimes we remind each other, you ain't there yet and you weren't there today. Doesn't mean the image isn't there. So when we're looking at that image, what we're seeing in the Christian sense 
It's Galatians 2.20. Therefore I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer Christ who lives in me. What we're seeing for those who have committed themselves to Christ is themselves retreating and the mountaintop of Christ Himself peeking through. What an amazing image that is. Therefore, when it comes to this, we have this image, we have this thing, we have this saying when people in the hospital, right? Especially near the end of the hospice, and I've heard this actually in hospital rooms, that this person is just a shadow of their former self. They used to be so vibrant and full of energy and full of humor, but yet now they're just a shell. They're just a shadow of their former self. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. In Christ, all of us are just a shadow of our future selves. One of the promises of Scripture and the themes of Scripture is that the way to be fully human is to be fully in fellowship with God. Genesis 1 and 2 language. That's how to be fully human. Anything not like that is actually being not human. At least how we were intended to be. The point of loving and seeking, actively seeking, is to actively seek each other and do what we can to actively seek each other to become more and more Christ-like. First and foremost, in ourselves with God. But then that's the commitment of what it means to be a member of a congregation, of a, of a body of believers that actually care about the same thing. It's not just that, hey, we'll work together and hey, we'll serve together. That's good. It's not just we'll sing together. That's good. But it's a commitment to each and every one of you that you make to every single other person to say, I will do whatever I can to help you become more Christ. And I expect you to do the same thing for me. That's what the commitment is when you become a member of, a of the Lord's church. And likewise, our community needs it too. And we need to actively respond and pursue them in order to do that for them as well. What's the point, brothers and sisters? This is setting a foundation. We're going to elaborate on more. But today I want to leave you with this. Love is active. Actively pursuing each other, actively responding to each other, and actively seeking each other. And if you want no other reason, I could have ended the sermon in seven seconds by saying, Why? Because God did that for you, and does that for you, and will continue to do that for each one of you and each one of us. Therefore, we ought to do the same. Brothers and sisters, I leave you with a wonderful thought. Go actively love someone this week. Actively choose someone to pursue in relationship. Actively respond to someone and figure out how to respond. And actively seek the Christ-likeness of not just those to whom it's easy for you to do so, but remember the commitment of what it means to be a member of the Lord's Church. Whoever you come across as you go, actively love as Christ actively loves you at this moment and will continue to do so. It's a good mission.